Welcome to the Football by Football podcast. Let's do it. Let's do it is right. It's championship peak here on the Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chatham, your host. Let's just dive into this thing. No, no reason to screw around. Let's get into the real meat here. There's plenty on the bone. A lot to talk about with the divisional game against the Titans and obviously a ton to dig into here with the Jaguars sitting on tap here in Foxborough. So uh, the way I want to kind of do this show, a little bit different than past shows, but we always go back and look at the team before and then we look ahead. The unique thing with this particular week is is the Titans actually have a lot of the same similar even offensive, but more so on the defensive side, concepts and elements that are going to repeat themselves. So there's going to be moments when we're going back through the Titan thing where it's going to be a semblance of what you'll see against the Jags. So I want to highlight that as we go through, as opposed to simply going a drive-by-drive thing with the Titans game. We'll just pick out big sort of takeaways from the Titans games, uh, from the Titans game, and then talk about where there's a reflection in what you'll see the next week. You know, the Titans do a lot of the same stuff that the Jags do. Uh, obviously, in certain instances, the Jags do them better, and others, not so much. Uh, so I think it makes for a nice little little week of prep if, if you're an in-house guy, if you're a coach, you know, part of that coaching staff or a player. Uh, you're going to go through a practice week where you were like, oh, just like we did last week, you know, oh. This looks very similar to what we just overcame. Can you execute it twice? Is the per, you know against maybe slightly better personnel in some spots and not so much in others? Uh, but that's the challenge, and yeah, I think if anything, it makes it's a little bit to the Patriots' advantage because you you know you get to sit at home and do it twice. You know you get to do it against uh, a team that uh, although they want an advance to see you, you got to see their other the other team's offense, Steelers' offense. Uh, take some big chunks out of this Jacksonville defense, a defense that, as I mentioned, is doing a lot of the same stuff the Titans' uh, defense did, and you rolled through them. So uh, makes for an interesting week of work. You still got to execute. means nothing. You got to go out and get it done on the field. But uh, let's, uh, let's try to do it this way, a little different now as we run through everything. So first, as I mentioned, we'll, we'll start in here with the Titans, as we always do, looking a little bit at last week's game. One of the things uh, that I would take is a, an off-the-top big takeaway element. Patriots run game, obviously it was solid on the day. Not overwhelming. This wasn't one of those 200-yard days. Uh, more in the passing game when they open things up later. Uh, that's when I think that the dial started to move for them scoring-wise. And uh, I'm sitting there with Jemiah Webster, uh, partner there of mine with, uh, with Nesson. We're sitting up with the box and watching the game together. And I think there was a moment after those first two drives where it's like they went a little heavier offensively. Um, and it was more run to set up some play-action opportunities. And the runs were mild gains, and so the play-action opportunities weren't as, weren't as wide open. They didn't do as much with them. Um, but Jemai and I were sitting there going back and forth. Like, I think it was the third series, I believe it was, when it flipped, and it felt like, okay, they've decided some tempo change in parts of these drives, but they've also sort of flipped it, at least the feel to be more pass to run. Still play action, but kind of flipped on its head. Uh, some more open sets where, you know, it's more 11 personnel where you have three, three wide receivers on the field. Some stuff that's meant to more spread you out and then create the opportunity sort of in the reverse direction. So, I mean, it's, it's conceptually, I think, play action always has to be there. You have to always create space one way or the other. They 
went a little more nuts and bolts early, didn't work as well for them, changed things, uh, and then were still able to find that run space they needed. But again, not an overwhelming thing. This was more of a pass day. Uh, but the run game was still there for them, and it was important in, in situational spots where they needed to get conversions, uh, especially down low in the red zone, the Bolden touchdown. Um, other spots earlier in the game where I sent some tweets out, a handful of tweets this week where I tried to get a bunch of videos out there to you guys of stuff that I thought popped in the game that were important elements. Uh, some, again, that will re- reflect in both games. But the run game stuff in relation to the double team I think is huge, and that's that I specifically highlighted where I saw good examples of that against the Titans because I think that's so incredibly important as well against the Jaguars. Um, much Both of these teams, when I say that there are some similarities, yeah, we'll talk about later in the coverages that they run are similar, but I think also in the makeup of the personnel. you got some heavies up front, a good big four, uh, big front four. Jarrell Casey we talked about last week is, is one of the better interior guys that you'll find in the league. He's very similar to Marcel Darius, uh, you know, the rotating guy on the inside there. For, for the Jags this week, and obviously as Patriots fans, you're very familiar with him with Buffalo, but... The other guy, Calais Campbell, you don't, there aren't any other 6'8 guys in the league. So you're not going to find like an exact body type replica for him. And what's unique about, about Campbell is he plays tackle in some of the regular fronts. You know, he'll be an inside guy of the four that are down. And then he pops out all the way to the left end in a lot of sub, or it can even end up another spot. So he's a, a unique and different kind of body type. Now, where did we mention a heavy that would be outside a week ago? That was with Jarrell Casey. Now, clearly, those two aren't the same body type. Casey, I think, is more like a 6'2", 6'3", guy, but he's heavy, right around 300, that can play in and out. Uh, Campbell is is the same in his, his body weight, but obviously he's a taller, longer guy, but that you'll find inside in moments, and then you'll find outside in others. That comes up with the tackle matchup if you end up on left end at left end against the right tackle. We don't know right now if it's going to be Adrian Waddle, who was the normal guy there but had the ankle injury in game. Sounds like he may miss some time but could be available for the Super Bowl in the event that that comes up. Uh, but Cam Fleming uh, it would be the, the Adler natural sort of add in there. Did a nice job when he filled in. The reason Waddle I thought was a good matchup, and I think he might be a slightly better matchup if you have to f- see Campbell in sub-situations, is it's big on big. Uh, Waddle's a 6'8 guy himself, you know, 6'7", 6'8", whatever the hell he is, but he's big. So it's sort of, you know, two monsters fighting one another. Uh, Fleming's more traditional, like he's a 6'4 guy and normal tackle size, but um, maybe he's a little better quick-footed. I don't know if that's true, but (laughs) the point is when they went with Waddle after we hadn't seen him uh, have starts in a while, I thought, you know, I think that might be in relation to what we talked about in the pod. I think that might be in relation to a little better body match for when they, they go bigs. Uh, on the edge and sub, something unique to Tennessee and now unique again to Jacksonville. But he's not available. It's going to be a tough matchup for Fleming. He'll have to do his best uh, and imagine they'll give him a lot of chip help as well. But he's also been holding up one, holding up one-on-one more often than not. So uh, it's not as if that's some sort of area con- for concern. Now back to sort of the notion of, of run, run movement and especially in the double. Here's why it matters against teams that run true four down, four, four, three. Uh, four down, three off the ball guys. Or when it's sub, the three off the ball, two of them are linebackers, one's a safety. The reason it matters about getting double movement is because if you get stalemated at the line of scrimmage with a double, in other words, you you know, the double, you know, doesn't make a play, but you don't get him off the line of scrimmage. Really because what you need is you need to move the double back towards the linebackers to affect the linebacker's angle to pursuit. 
and potentially, and this is usually the best run blocking uh, situations, and the Patriots do this really well, where you double, get movement, and climb to the guy. So in other words, you, you come off the double team and then actually get movement. And that really screws up these lighter linebackers. And we, we talked a lot about Wesley Woodyard last week. Uh, he's a smaller wheel linebacker, active all over the place, makes plays. He's a 4-5 flat guy. Obviously, he's a vet. He's a 31-year-old guy, so he's been in the league a while. But he's that smaller, faster active linebacker and Telvin Smith we'll talk about him obviously a lot here with the Jags he's number 50 he's listed at 218 I think that's a college number I gotta presume in the NFL he's put on a little weight more weight than that he's probably closer to 230 I'm guessing but that's a safety I mean that's you know he's 6'3 so he's taller and skinnier maybe he still is in the 220s I don't know but he, he's active as all hell he's long he's all over the place but he is a light-bodied dude direct runs or in these situations we're talking about where you get movement, and direct run means it's you know it's not cut back, it's not misdirection. It's like we align to one side, we show action to, say, the left side, and we run to the left side. You run where you're looking to run, right? You run where you show them they're going to run, direct, right at you, right? And those situations where, say, the double is on the, is on the play side, the double usually is. So those double teams where you get movement and push the movement into the lap of guys like Telvin Smith, of guys like Miles Jack. Miles Jack's another one, not the biggest linebacker in the world, 6'1", 240-ish. He's a little heavier. He's got a little more legs and, and butt to him, but he's still not you know the 6'4", prototype kind of big thumper. Pozlowski is their heavy guy. He's their true Mike linebacker. Again, you'll know him well from the Bills. But with these two other smaller outside linebackers, they run, man. They, you know, you everyone knew about Jack's, you know, Jack coming out of UCLA. He was one of the most athletic dudes out there. Makes plays all over the field. Used to be a running back, all that kind of thing. Uh, but Telvin Smith was a, a less regarded guy, uh, probably because that oddball body type to want to play linebacker. But when you get this movement on the double. Uh, which the Patriots do in concert with a couple different dudes. It's usually Solder working with Tooney, climbing to the second level, or either Mason working with either of those two tackles, climbing to the second level. If you get movement, get the, the guy on, on you, over you, which is probably going to be Darius or could be, uh, what's the other dude's name? I should give that to you. Uh, da, 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 da. Abra Jones, yeah. Uh, number 95. So he's their true nose tackle, but this is not like a, it's not like an immovable force Ted Washington kind of thing or Vince Wolfork kind of deal. They're more active up front. Um, Darius is definitely a jump-around guy, and I think you can use that aggressiveness gap play stuff because those are the guys that you get movement on more. But the point here is getting movement on whoever it is they choose to double and then climb into these little tiny linebacker dudes, uh, you they get gashed. And it, it's happened many times. You can find a lot of it on film, even in the Niners games, even a week ago against the Steelers, climbing to the next level because you got movement on the, on the online guy. That's so important. When they don't get movement, or those those guys in the front get penetration, and it gets the you know the offensive lineman sort of in retreat mode, or they're not moving forward and advancing towards the linebacker level, that's when these linebackers are so dangerous. That's when Telvin Smith just flows and chases. He's he's so much better when he's chasing plays, just like Wesley Woodyard. Um, so I think it's really important, and if you're just sitting at home watching this game this weekend and trying to sort of key in on something, look and see if the offensive line is getting movement and climbing to the second level. If they're not, if they're stalemates at the line, that probably means that those linebackers are tearing shit right down, you know, downhill and and effing stuff up. You know, that's that's where they're best. But if they get movement on the front and they climb to those linebackers, they're not great at, at direct run stuff. These are not big, strong dudes. These are not. 
you know, your pro, this is not like a Dante Hightower body type or somebody who thumps and sheds. These are guys that want to be free to run because the guys up front did some did some scrambling of eggs in front of them. So keep an eye on that, and the Patriots did a good job of it last week. But, uh, again, it wasn't a dominant job, we should say that. You know, clearly if it had been, we were, we're looking more of a, a flip script game where it was a 200-yard rushing again. This wasn't that. They got sort of the hard threes and fours, and they needed them. Broke a few late that helps get your yards per carry up higher. Uh, but by and large, you know, when they tried to go obvious, in other words, the pro sets where your fullback's in there and, you know, you just have two wide receivers on the field, those are the moments where you're going to have to get movement against the Jags. They got some against the Titans, but they did abandon it because they weren't, you know, sort of, uh, you know, run through them that way. So, anyway, that's something to keep an eye on, movement in the double team and climbing up these little-ass linebackers. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say little-ass like it's derogatory. It's You know, these guys are just lighter in the butt. They're active as all other, fast all over the field. But if it's man-on-man, you know, Gronk, say Gronk climbing up to one of these guys, they get swallowed. Uh, they're best if they can flow. And if they can flow, they make plays and, and screw up offensive plays left and right. The second big takeaway element from the Titans game for me uh, that I think is, is you know, if you're, you're a Patriots fan, obviously listen to this show, and you, wanna, you want the best possible scenario for this team to advance and be tough regardless of the defense they face, you know, whether it's this Jags or they happen to make it the next level with Minnesota or Philly. You need the dependable. You need the sticks guy. You need the guy that when things break down, he gets himself open. Um, not even break down. I think when things extend, when you get the extended pocket plays for Brady, uh, when you have sort of you know, those gotta-have-it moments, the guy that can get to sticks depth, shake himself free with the defender, and get open dependably. For years and years and years, that's been uh, uh, that's been Julian Edelman, and then you know Amendola was a was an add into that, an extra sort of gutsy guy that was clutch as all hell, but his role was more minor. And last year, a year ago, where Malcolm Mitchell was another guy that could shake and get free, so you really had three of those guys running around. That's why it was such a different offense a year ago than I think it is now. But last week against the Titans, obviously Amendola has his his first, I think, I believe his first hundred yard postseason game. And I, I, again, don't have the stats in front of me. Something like 10 or 11 catches. I thought maybe it was over 10. But the point is active. A lot of targets, a lot of plays. And really hit into important elements. And, it, again, I think it's really important that these kinds of things show up because he's the guy they need to do it because there's no Jules and there's no Mount Mitchell right now. So he's kind of the one of those three body types that, that really uh, uh, excels at this kind of stuff. And those two areas are the interior jerks, uh, I, jerk routes we call them, or just anything where he sits and then pulls away from the route. So run up to Sticks depth, whatever that happens to be, Sticks being first down depth. And then shake a move, you know, go left or right, get rid of the guy, you know, go to a depth, shake, get free. The windows are small in those kind of situations. That's that's why you got to have a super accurate quarterback that can drill it in there. That's why, you know, all those years of Welker and all those years then of Julian uh, and now Amendola in these situations, uh, you know, it's it's important. You, you it's so hard to stay on those guys. You know, when they shake and get loose like that, they gain themselves an instantaneous one to two yards of separation, but then that's when the ball has to arrive because then the separation closes up real quick because the route's not running away at full speed. It's, you know, you're from a standstill. Uh, and again, what was always great about Edelman was that he wasn't just that. He wasn't just a slot guy. He could go out to X. He could, he could really win routes all over the field. But when it came time, got to have it. 
you know, winning there uh, at the sticks level and shaking guys free when you really need a dude that can win one on one in the middle of the field. That's been that was Amendola last week, and I think that was a really positive development. They had less of that against Miami in sort of the uglier game a month a month ago, whatever it was. Uh, there's been other weeks where they didn't push the ball to him that way as much. And I think that really reduces the overall effectiveness of the offense, especially when you don't have a healthy Burkhead out there sort of shaking in free space as well. Um, you know, again, we'll, we'll kind of learn more if that's available this week. But that was a major positive. You're, you're watching film. You're Jacksonville. You run all this cover three crap. Uh, I say crap, but I, I've had to run that coverage. I don't love it. I'll, I'll talk about more reasons why. <laughs> it's obviously effective if they're this good, but uh, we'll talk about where the holes are. But the, the point of those kinds of heavy zone coverages where it's read and react, basically. You, you pattern match routes or you read the quarterback and try to, to get back on the route before he can slip it in, slip it in there. The guy like Amendola matters the most. You gotta have that guy because you gotta have the guy that's creative enough, that's on the page with the quarterback enough to sit in those holes, to find those holes, to sort of stretch the the, the zone coverage players and then jerk out of it and find the hole before you get back to the next zone player. Those guys are important. If you don't have one of those on the roster at the time, you just have the the, the fast guys, the the straight ahead guys, the more traditionals, you know, the, the cooks, which is more what his what his route tree is like even Philip Dorsett more traditional you know uh, Britt wasn't even active this game but I would say more of that type of player Uh, having the guy that can do what Amandula does is really important we saw it last week and those things you saw him having all those plays against that's the same stuff you're going to see against Jacksonville so uh, the other portion besides just the interior jerk plays and the stick stuff is the scramble place and the reason scramble place and it's not when I'm talking scramble like Brady leaves and you know Russell Wilson stuff and he's out booting and running around. I'm talking about when they get three man rush and, and Jacksonville will do a decent amount of this, not a lot. It's usually four, uh, but they'll occasionally do three with uh, Duke. I, I can't say the guy's name. I should pull it up here because he's been really impressive. Yannick, I just call him Yannick, <laughs> number ninety-one, and Gakwe. I think Yannick and Gakwe, number ninety-one. Sometimes he's the off the ball, a little bit like Marquise Flowers has been for the Patriots, where they'll they'll let him be the fourth. You know, he's the fourth, and he'll add in eventually, but he stands and then delivers late, right? Flowers has done that, and gotten some sacks off that as well. But in those situations, there tends to be more extended pockets. They're kind of letting it just be three and then letting the quarterback step and declare and then let the other guy add in. That's intentional. And in those situations where the pocket extends, that's when you know the route that you were given or the, whatever they ran traditionally, you get to the top of the stem, you break, you turn, the quarterback didn't throw it to you, and then it's sort of a do something new kind of thing. And then it has to kind of be about relationship with the quarterback and who best reads the coverage behind him to find the hole. And that's where Danny had some big plays last week against the Titans. Run your original called route, turn, nothing happened, relocate yourself and find the hole and watch Brady find you. In the three-man rush, that's where that happens most often. Uh, that's where you got to have the guy that's creative that way. If you have the guy that just kind of floats or doesn't, you know, runs to an area, runs runs to be covered, um, you know, that, that doesn't work as well. So you have to have the sort of... S- the dude that's created, the dude that's dependable, the dude that you know Brady can kind of give you a little nudge with it, or a little little nod of the head, or a little little shake, or a little look, and uh, maybe a point or something, and send you a spot. And know you'll get there, and know enough to sit and not run yourself into the next 
coverage player. Uh, Amadola having a big week on that kind of stuff and seeing how important that is against the three stuff because once it breaks, then it's just a whole bunch of his own players out there who doesn't really have who don't really have a guy. They haven't latched and become man to man players. Scramble plays are a little different on, on man because you know the fact that the pocket's broken down, and the play goes longer. Well, the guy covering you still continues to run with you. Sometimes on those plays, it actually allows the defender to get back on you better, right? But that's that's not the case. Again, point here being it's really good to have a guy like Amendola playing what appears to be at a pretty high level at a time when you need that most. Um, we're going to go here into the sort of the Gronk talk and how it came up in the Titans game. Um, obviously, he has a, has, a, has a nice game against them. Uh, he's still sort of an unsolved guy that I think people just keep sort of spinning the wheels and trying a number of things, uh, not all that have worked. But... Cover three, uh, and again, I should kind of walk through. Uh, eh, we can do well. Who 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 else does that? We can we can do that later, so you kind of understand what these are. Because I don't want to say I, I I hate to mislead listeners and 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 people who who follow me on Twitter to make you think that a defense plays one cover exclusively because they don't. No teams do that, but it's the concept that they they revert to most often, basically. And when you have a really good tight end like Gronk and Frankly, the Titans haven't, or the Titans hadn't seen a bunch of them. Excuse me, the Jags haven't seen a bunch of them. It's not like, it's not like the offenses they've faced the last four to six weeks that I've been studying are like highest end guys. You know, Charles Clay's solid, Kittle out in San Francisco solid, uh, but you know, it's not. They weren't facing. Uh, they weren't facing Gronk types or Kelsey types week in week out, where it's focused the offense stuff. And that's those kind of guys generally gash you, and it, because. You're trying to not necessarily pattern match or just get there before the quarterback beats the ball there as a guy sits in between your two coverage players. Vance McDonald, you know, a good, solid tight end, used to be out in San Francisco. Uh, now he's in in uh, in Pittsburgh. He has an over 10-catch game. And a lot of the times it's just forgotten about, you know, just sitting in the zone, uh, late release after protecting out in the flats. Nobody's covering you. And Vance had a heyday. Uh, against this Jags defense. And I look back to Gronk and I say, you know what? He had a real solid day against Tennessee. Uh, and I'm thinking the Jags are going to watch that and say, well, are we just willing to drop into some version of three, some version of a zone thing, pray that the, the front four gets there before Tom locates this guy? And Gronk's smart enough to sit in between the holes of this zone. Or will they do something entirely different and give him uh, you know, more attention? But we're used to, if you're a Patriots fan or, or someone who watches this team and breaks them down constantly, you don't see a lot of zone coverages against Gronk because there's no doubles in zone generally. I mean, I guess you technically can do like a, you know, like a box in one you'd see in basketball where you man one guy and everyone else plays zone. Uh, but that's pretty unusual. So, a lot of times, teams like this, uh, the Steelers did it against the Patriots in the playoffs a year ago, and there was all that talk about, you know, they got to come up with something different. Gronk's running free through the through the secondary. They, not, excuse me, uh, not Gronk, but just the receivers are running free through the secondary, sitting down in holes, completion after completion after completion. There was all the talk going in this year. Are they going to play less of this zone? Are they going to play more man-to-man to figure out a way to beat the Patriots? All those articles written, all those quotes were given, but by and large, teams kind of like to do what they do. And that makes me wonder is, you know, the Jags are going to have an opportunity to watch that film and say, can we sit in three all day uh, when these are who their best players are and it's the kind of quarterback uh, that they have? I don't know if they can. And that's sort of where you get into the hitting heads with the coordinator who says, we do what we do. It's got us to this point. Let's roll with it. 
or do you game plan and say that stuff doesn't actually work too good against what they're going to bring to us and are you willing to change so that's that's usually the tension at this time of year um I don't have the right answer, you know, because sometimes game planning and, and trying to do other things really aren't what your guys execute well either. But I think the benefit here for the Patriots is the stuff that they do kind of works nice against who you got. You know, Rob Gronkowski running seam routes against threes, gold, gold, because that's where that's the beaters. Seam routes are the beaters against cover three. It's a real stress on the curl to flat player. Um, and we'll kind of get into that more when we talk specifically Jacksonville with their personnel, but how it related to the Tennessee game. Uh, we'll, we'll stick here more on red zone. So this is important. Obviously, the scoring zones are what, what most people care about uh, because at this time of year, well, all, all times in football, but the points are where it's going to matter, this thing. Not just if moving in the middle of the field, but can you score? Now, with Gronk being, I think, a high office focus as you get down in the red zone, Cover three ain't great. Why? Because cover three, uh, and and the and cover three means you have a middle of the field player, and those two cornerbacks are sort of bailing and playing thirds. So the deep players play one third, one third, one third, right? One of them be a safety, and the other two guys be in the corners on the outside, and that means four underneath defenders, four underneath defenders, three over the top defenders. The reason three isn't great in the red zone is because there are no thirds. There's no deep thirds. I mean, you can cut it into three pieces, but the underneath players are just a few yards away from the on-top players because the room's shrunk. So sometimes three, if that's your core concept, it ain't great down the middle. Do you need a middle third player? The middle third player and the middle linebacker can be standing right next to one another. That's why usually teams more go split safeties and do half stuff down there or just play man concepts or, or you know of some sort as the room gets tight. But uh, there were the Titans sometimes stuck in some of those own concepts, and the Patriots took advantage. Um, one of the, so we'll look at a, di- a few different ways that Gronk has been accounted for down in that area. Man with no help, which is insane in my view, and we've seen enough of that throughout the year where he motions out, he aligns, and they've chosen the guy that they think should take him, and they think that guy can win. And I think we've seen Gronk take advantage of just about everyone except for Eric Berry. Eric Berry did a nice job with him early in the season and was, frankly, allowed to hang on him, allowed to really, really be aggressive on him without getting penalties. And that's really dependent here in the playoffs if they let a guy do that. So we've heard the theories. Uh, it was some of the first things said right out of as soon as people realized it was Jacksonville, the Patriots, ooh, put Jalen Ramsey on, on Gronk. Now, let's talk a little bit about that, how that would work down the red zone. Now, if you're doing that, you're probably obviously not running cover three. You're not running zone and just having guys area drop. You're playing man, we're presuming, right? Now, if you do that, you're taking your best cover guy and taking him off the Patriots wide receiver. So what that, and put him on a tight end of all people. So what that presumes is that you're good enough at the other two spots where you can get away with Boye, uh, maybe on cooks or something like that. And you get away with, I think it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Boone number 22. It's 2021 and 22 of the three defensive backs for Jacksonville. But um, blanking on his name right now. I should learn it. he's pretty good. Uh, I'm just calling him by number. But anyway, getting getting to the point where you feel comfortable enough to do something crazy like that, where you can say, hey, we have a cornerback who's great. He's 6'1". He's good corner. He's one of the best in the league. He's had a really nice yeah, sort of young guy career thus far. But if you're willing to do that, you're willing to say you're gambling that your 6'1 can make plays against their 6'7". Yeah, Ramsey's going to be able to match foot speed with Gronk, but he's not going to be able to, to handle extension when the ball's thrown away. He just can't close the gap. 
Ball comes fast. It's only 10 and 15 yard throws down there. Can he close the gap of a 6'7 guy when you're 6'1? Usually not. So my guess, that was a lot of Twitter talk. Uh, if the if the Jags do that, want to go man concepts of the red zone, and want to put their best corner on Gronk, A, I just don't think it works because you're not you're not tall enough, and I don't know how else to to say it. He's he's been he's been catching balls with guys perfectly tight to them throughout the year. So your guy is going to be tighter. I don't think so. I, I just I just think that it's not a who, it's a how. And I, I tweeted about that a little bit earlier in the week. So I, I I presume that that won't be their answer if they try it. I think that's definitely advantage Patriots because if much as anything, you take your best coverage guy off of where he's needed on the wide receivers. So you, that gets into your depth um, with your own wide receiver depth. And the Patriots like to go eleven down there, or even or even ten. You know, on a well, not ten. I guess the three wide receiver and one tight end thing, and Gronk's extended as a wide receiver. So. That would be one test to see how they do. The the man-no-help situation, and do they think they have a, a one guy who can take him? The other one is like a Miles Jack, linebacker, but he's 6'1", right? He can run. He can he could probably run close with Gronk, but can he match extension when the ball arrives? Can he close that one- or two-yard gap that he gets just as the shake happens and the ball arrives? Usually not. What you need to cover Rob Gronkowski perfectly in one-on-one situation is another 6'6 guy that moves like him. Those people don't exist <laughs> you know, or they're hard to find let's put it that way and maybe they can cover them short area space like a julius peppers uh, and that's that's a, probably a terrible example but uh, you know he's 290 but the, the point is the, the the body type that can do this consistently might be able to do it for a rep or two or three you can find those win a rep or two from gronk but win it every down for 20 25 snaps hard to find man so i think in that in, in that instance you need multiple so Let's get out of this talk and talk about uh, – yeah, the point of that is I don't think there's an answer. So to get out of this, I think that the way you keep Gronk from scoring down there, if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars, you have to commit the second guy, and you have to let Brady see him early. Um, number 31 for the Titans, they did this a couple times, where he had a line actually in the box, and on the snap of the ball he would run right out towards Gronk, and they would do a good job of actually playing outside leverage. That forced Brady to throw some balls away in the back of the end zone. You need to do that. You need to declare. You need to say – you're not going to this guy. You, you cannot go to this guy. If you leave it where uh, it's it's just Gronk shaking him in open space, playing with the dude's leverage, delivering a ball tight, and, and you just happen to have, be longer than Gronk, you're not usually going to win that. So we'll see what the da- Jaguars choose. I don't think there's a lot of great answers there. Maybe it is like a tel- the Telvin Smith dude, number 58, or 50. He's light, He's you know, he's, he, but he's 6'3", so he's a little bit taller. Maybe they believe that linebacker can one-on-one. Highly doubt it. All right, moving on here. So the pass rush breakdown for the Patriots. You know, I want to get out of this game here uh, in the next 10 minutes. So we'll kind of, I'll try to kind of quickly go through sort of what came out of the Titans game in relation to the Patriots pass rush, where I think guys stand. Now, I know there's an attitude about the Patriots as far as the quality of the front seven or the, the talent level or whatever. And I think a lot of that is, is driven by where someone was drafted or what they know of him now. Uh, I think Adam Butler, the more and more I watch this guy, he's as talented, whatever the word, whatever that word means, as far as a big that can move is any of the interior rush guys that you're seeing. Now you go watch all of Marcel Darius's snaps in sub rushing situations. Go watch all of them, watch every snap he took, uh, throughout this playoffs and then go watch all, all of Adam Butler's. And you tell me that Adam Butler isn't every bit the sub pass rush big 
as is Marcel Darius. He is. I, mean, I would love to sit with anyone who wants to dispute that. Butler is disruptive as all hell. He wins really often. So I don't know why. Is, and it's not a scheme thing. It's not like someone you know putting him in a place to win. It's just him rushing over the guard or center and winning really, really frequently. And to me, that's like when people somehow you know question the, the front seven talent as if the Patriots' front seven talent is somehow a notch down from these teams that are remaining in the tournament. I don't think they're watching film, quite frankly. I, there's, how is that not talent? How is that super quick guy who keeps beating guards and guards and centers, who's six three? It's not. It's not like he's. It's not like he's five eleven, two sixty, and he's just a, a, you know, an unusual body type. And it's like, wow, it's a, a quirk that he's getting there. No, he's as big as the other, and he keeps winning. I, I don't know how that's not talent. That's talent. It, just because he wasn't drafted high, I don't know. I don't get that. He's talented, and he's been very impressive. And if you just simply, you know. Didn't know the names and just watch the front four of the Patriots rush over the last month, even further back than that, but just to keep it tight. Look at, watch Adam Butler. Watch Dietrich Wise. Those two as a two-person tandem, rushing and causing disruption on the inside, are as good as it's out there. They really are. Uh, you know, Brandon Graham, great watching him with Philly. Watch some of the guys, uh, you know, obviously we mentioned Darius. Obviously we know that, that uh, Clyce Campbell's doing some stuff, and, and he's, he's impressive for this power game. But these two guys, Dietrich Wise and Adam Butler, it's probably because they're young. It's probably because they weren't first-round draft picks. But Dietrich Wise, at 6'6", big power power forward kind of body type, he didn't get a lot of rest. He wasn't a full-time guy, uh, didn't play full seasons for Arkansas, and that hurt his draft status. But if you took him now, what he's doing, just watching sub-rushing, Dietrich and Butler, that is a great tandem, especially when you got some ends to go around them. You mix in... Trey Flowers around those guys, James Harrison, uh, you know, and, and now Marquise Flowers is an off-the-ball in Van Noy. That is a great group. That is a great sub-rushing group. The eight sacks a week ago speak for themselves. This is a crew that can absolutely get pressure. It's a good group. And, and again, we're not even mentioning the first-rounder there, Malcolm Brown, who is sort of a rotational come-in guy. He's really more of a run-stopper, but he can also push pockets as well. All I'm trying to say here is – Screw rankings. Who cares about that stuff? Who cares about the stats? But at this point, if you just flip on tape and you're watching what's going down right now, this Patriots rush crew is second to none uh, for what's left. And that's not to say that Minnesota's got a great one. Obviously, some of those guys are really good. But you flip this back on and say, you know what? These guys are doing a lot of what those other people are doing and just simply don't have the reputation that goes with them. This isn't about ranking a defense or ranking a front or ranking a seven or any of that stuff. It's just saying, I appreciate what you got. They're doing really good. They're really doing really high-level work, and I think it's a nice thing having to go into this next level. So Marquise Flowers, we mentioned him. Uh, I think the unique element there, and it's a lot like D Ford kind of was for Kansas City, and D's on IR now. Uh, but having a linebacker that's a little lighter that can rush, uh, but that also covers, and that also is sort of an antagonist <laughs> with the guards about is he coming, is he not coming? He's freezing guards, getting them to take him for a second, then not being involved in the rush, then either covering, then uh, like in a hug situation where he comes across the line and gets the back, or an add-in late where he's rerouting someone, like the tight end releasing, and then coming in late and no one picks him up. Did the cool little thing I put on Twitter there earlier, showed that that, that fake rush. It was hilarious. Uh, Marquise Flowers aligns over the edge. He's across from Taylor Lewan, you know, first-round pick from Michigan, good big, one of the better tackles in the league. And he does a fake drop, turns to the outside as if he's going to go uh, out in the coverage. 
and then comes across the line and, and gets a sack. That's funny. That's that, that that cracked me up because you don't usually get away with that. That's sort of just some uh, on the fly kind of stuff. Uh, but that's cool. And I, I think the important part of this is that Marquise Flowers is a really unique kind of player that has been a nice add into what they do up there. You know, Dietrich Wise and Adam Butler. That's a nice one too as far as bigs that can move around. Flowers it can cover and rush, and he's sort of the delay rush guy. But most importantly, he's the spy body. He's the guy that when you have a mobile quarterback, and we know that Blake Bortles has been making as many plays with his legs as anything in the last couple of weeks, much like uh, like Marcus Mariota, when it's time to step up and go, do you have a guy that can stay with him? Do you have a guy that's fronting the pocket but then can also match foot speed, especially in that first five yards? It's the one that matters most so he doesn't get out and start and start striding. Uh, and, and that's been really the nice addition of Marquise Flowers. Without him, you know, you're probably trying to match that pocket with a Landon Roberts, who's, who's a very good sideline-to-sideline thumper, but he's not as quick, right? He's not as fast. Most linebackers aren't. So it's not a knock on a land. It's more just, hey, thank goodness you got one of those really fast guys. It's a little lighter bodied that has a little pass rush to him, but they'll also confront and run down pockets. That's a really nice add-in. In the absence of Marquise Flowers, yeah, this looks a lot different. That takes Van Noy out of having to be that guy each and every down, and he can kind of be the coverage guy sometimes, or sometimes he's the pocket front as well. He can do that job also at a pretty high level, but I think Flowers just a little bit of a notch above uh, in that particular role. Just a really, really nice in-season find, and a role that developed during the year. It's not like they plugged him in right when they got him from Cincinnati. He developed into it, and they found out, hey, this guy does this really good. Why does that matter? It's the thing that, that that's really kept the, the, the Jacksonville offense afloat. Uh, you know, and you'll watch. You'll need to watch carefully. Do the Patriots consistently front the pocket? Do they consistently have someone there to run him down? Front in the pocket means it's not two and two, left and right of center, pass rush, pass rush, pass rush, upfield pass the quarterback, and then as the quarterback steps up, there's not someone in front of him. You need to have someone directly in front on the step up. So it can be three-man rushes with Flowers as the fourth, or it can be all four as down, hand down, but one of the interior guys not flying too far up the field, fronting that way. Fronting Bortles, very important. Fronting Mariota, obviously very important. They got it, and they really got after him by understanding that concept. Trey Flowers, don't need to spend a ton of time on him. He's their guy. He's the guy with the best moves. He's the guy with the best pass rush, raw ability, counters, power, uh, active, um, getting, making plays himself, but also making gaps, you know, sort of make, causing disruption that allows other people to fall in on plays and get sacks. Really a nice sort of mix between Trey Flowers, Adam Butler, Dietrich Wise, and then the active guy, Marquise, who kind of flowers, who does kind of a little of everything. It's been a nice mix. It's a nice group to have. And again, we're not even mentioning sort of the power dude and James Harrison who come in and just press tackles. And he did a little of that in the Titans game as well. Didn't get home, but uh, it's just a nice little mix. Last guy, Van Noy mentioned him a little bit. Uh, when they do some of this stuff where you have your four down, you have your sort of traditional four guys that are going to rush in sub situation, your two off the ball guys can now be Van Noy and and uh, Marquise Flowers. You can add in the fifth if you want to pressure a little bit with a fifth guy, or either of those guys can be coverage guys. It really gives you some flexibility. You can drop off one of the ends, with, and we've seen them do that with Trey Flowers or James Harrison, drop them and then add in one of these two inside off-the-ball guys. Again, the best configuration of talent and the best configuration of role fitting uh, that they've had is now in January. And I think that's very helpful, obviously. This, this, these roles and these sort of 
this development wasn't the same if we're having this conversation in October, November as it is today. It's grown to where it is now, and obviously with a, a couple of additional pieces and also some improved help, health, it's gotten a lot better. But I think big takeaway here is we step away from this particular topic. That little core, you got to feel really good about it, and you'll have to handle Blake Bortles and that offense a certain way, and I think they're built to do it. Um, we're going to go here next into to – sort of uh, the injury situation and how that might affect matchups uh, coming out of the Titans game. You know, what was sort of the exit the exit situation that we'll be talking about? You guys will know about it because obviously this is a downloaded podcast that's going to live on the Internet up until game day, although we're taping it here on a Wednesday morning early. Um, Jonathan Jones, we know hurt his ankle late, hurt foot, ankle, something like that late in the game, went down at a time where we don't know where that, leaves him. Uh, you'll know this more than I do as I'm talking to you, whether or not he's, his practice participation's up and he'll be able to be ready to go. I mean, AFC Championship, you're going to want to be there if you, if, you, if you even possibly can. But that said, it, there was an interesting wrinkle this past week, and Jonathan Jones really moving back to the fourth spot. He's the fourth corner because Eric Rowe has been, uh, I think, really improved health with his groin. He's back and looking quick and looking like he can handle slot guys. And a week ago it was Rashard Matthews, which is not a traditional slot. You know, He's a, a bigger, taller, more deliberate uh, inside wide receiver, which is actually a nicer fit, I think, for Rowe. But sometimes if you get the quick and fast guy, interior dude, you know, maybe a guy – not that Marquise Lee is a slot guy, but if you want to if you want to match body types, having a quicker, faster third corner, sometimes you know it's good to have Jonathan as uh, Jones as that other option. But if he's out and not available, oddly enough, Batamosi, who we've seen have a really nice season this year, uh, uh, Johnson Batamosi had been you know top special teams guy, making plays all over the place there. Stepped up, has had some games where he started at corner here. Uh, as the third guy, played a bunch of reps and did a great. He was inactive last week. That was crazy to me. So uh, not crazy, but just okay. Wow. I, I mean, as high levels he's played as big a part as he's been to this point to be inactive and not just at least keep the team's role and and, and you maybe not get the high reps and sub. That was unusual. So I imagine it'll be a pretty competitive situation. I'm sure he wants to be up and active for this game. It's the AFC Championship game, uh, but with Jones's you know potential you know teetering health there. I got a sense that Batamosi will probably be back and involved uh, as much as insurance uh, for Jones' health as far as uh, rather than just a one-for-one. But we'll see. And Jones matters a lot because, remember, he's one of those gunners, a really good gunner on the punt team and a good coverage guy in kickoff. So that would be a significant loss if Jones isn't able to go. I think that means Batamosi's absolutely got to be up if he doesn't. Um, Moving through this, the rest of this group – Understand sort of the makeup of Jacksonville's second uh, wide receiver group, different than Tennessee. Tennessee's Rashard Matthews, like I said, a little bit bigger guy. Eric Decker, very much bigger, 6'3", 6'4", guys, whatever he is. He's, he's taller, more upright. And Corey Davis, big guy, big talent, lankier wide receiver. That was Tennessee's mix. Jacksonville's not quite the same. They're two top target guys, uh, Marquise Lee, uh, is a six foot guy, 190 poundish kind of dude. Uh, Didi Westbrook, more similar as far as body size of there. He's not a, you know, not not significantly over six foot. He's around six foot. He's around that you know, sub 200 number. And then they've got their two other bigs, but they're bigs and super thin. Alan Hearns is a, is a lift guy, 6'3". Uh, Keelan Cole, 6'2", 185. So he's a little bit over six foot. But none of these guys are big and thicker. These are not big, strong wide receivers. They're more wiry. Um, and the reason I mentioned that, just sort of their slightly different body type, is you might 
see some different matchups than you would have in the other one. So maybe the quicker, faster guy like Jonathan Jones, say had he been healthy, gets more reps in a game like this, or maybe Eric Rowe isn't as appealing. Uh, or he is. I don't know. I don't know where they're at in their heads, but Rowe is, I believe, their tallest corner, has a real nice matchup in certain situations, and maybe, hey, they've got like a true jerk route, in and out, quick, fast, inside guy that they don't want to put him on. And maybe that gets Jones, if he's healthy, or a guy like Badamosi more work. Who knows? But little different, little slightly different mix this year, or this week, excuse me. And really, there is no lead horse. You know, Mark Easley, I guess, is kind of their top guy. Missed a couple games, uh, but he's only got three playoff receptions. So he hasn't been a big part of their passing game. We know the Jags passing game isn't, isn't gangbusters anyhow. D.D. Westbrook, there were times where he was very effective. He only played in seven games this year. Rookie, coming on at times, but a raw player, right? Alan Hearns, you know, gets a huge deal. I believe it was a year ago, whatever. Like, he's fallen off the face of the earth. Did play in ten regular season games. Uh, did have two playoff games, but he only had one reception for 12 yards, which is crazy. You know, we're talking Jags offense a year or two ago. You're talking about Allen Robinson and Hearns and this these two new young studs and Bortles as a rising guy, and that really ain't what's going on anymore. And I, don't, I don't know the situation enough to really hardcore evaluate why Allen's Hearns role has shrunk so much, but it has. But he is the taller, longer, lankier guy. If he was a bigger part of the offense, you know, that's a great matchup from Gilmore wire, you know, wire to wire. But I don't know they do it because he's not targeted that often. So I guess we'll see. Now, Keelan Cole, he's another rookie. So him and Westbrook are two both rookies. Uh, he led the team in yards, uh, played in all 16. Availability being more important than ability, as we always say. But he was really the, guy, the wire-to-wire guy for them. And you know I think that's how he led them in yards. Not, as, not necessarily if he'd played 16 and all the other guys have played 16, he'd be targeted the most. Not necessarily. But um, I, the, the point of all that with that group I don't think you have a bell cow, pretty clearly. I don't think there's like, you know, the whole Patriots notion of who do we got to take away and wipe off their best guy or the thing that they do best. The thing they do best is run the football with Fournette. The, the passing group is young, raw, or not so dangerous. So I think you can kind of play them straight. I don't think you're going to be shifting coverage uh, or doubles or anything like that to any one of these wide receivers. I think that's pretty much play it straight, let the help elements go where maybe Bortles wants to go, down a distance, tendencies, things like that. But it's not personnel-driven in my view. It's not like, hey, we have to stop this person in this down a distance. This is where he loves to go. Marquise Lee is probably the closest thing you have to it, but, I mean, that's that's really more back to regular season talk. It hasn't been that way in the playoffs, so we will see. Um, Ladrian Waddle, that's another injury with the Patriots. He had the angle, ankle banged up. Banged up. I referenced that earlier. Got to assume that, Waddle, that that Fleming is your starter, and I think, I'm presuming again here, this is a guess, but that if Waddle is so banged up that he can't dress, then that, that pretty clearly brings Cole Croston, uh, the young rookie from Iowa that's kind of a versatile dude, has played tackle. I think they worked him at guard a little bit in the, in, in the, in the preseason, but we don't know what his development is. He's certainly a project, a guy they like a lot. Uh, but where he is now, just hopefully he's up to speed enough to where they feel comfortable. Plug in a minute for some reason in-game, Fleming goes down because that would be the situation. But that's the situation with any team where you get down to, what, your fourth tackle, really? Because you're Cannon, then Waddle, then Fleming, then Croston. So, you know, you, obviously I'm, I'm not trying to talk these people onto the field and not trying to wish injuries upon anyone. I'm just 
doing the hypothetical in the event that it is, Crossan's got to be a part of the formula because he's the next tackle in. And, uh, you know, they'll give him help. They're not going to leave him out there on an island on a guy like Clyus Campbell or anything like that. So that would presumably be the next level. So obviously that would be an injury that will really be monitored throughout the week. If for some reason Waddle is able to tape it up, get it shot up, be man workable to where they feel comfortable with him, at least as an emergency guy, if something happens to Fleming, that could be the case. But if they don't feel comfortable or they think that it's, you know, he's a play away kind of thing, Croston would be active and, you know, hopefully he's, they're, they're putting some fire under him this week and challenging him, letting their, letting their good players work against him and see what he's got because playoff football is, is different than regular season football and he's not yet got a chance to do that. So nice young player. We'll see if any of that comes up. So, again, watching the inactive list is going to be exciting again here for this Patriots week, as exciting as it can be. But it really does change things with the decisions they make of who's up and who's not in that 46. So, Burkhead, got to mention it. I know it's a big, it's a big thing with Patriots fans that, you know, this guy it was such a big part of things when he was healthy, but he's gone down with injuries at two different instances during this season. Right now it's a knee injury. Uh, and I think that they've, you know, little birdies I've heard, little sort of chatter that, it sounds like he's getting healthier. They'll work him back to where he's got a great shot for this week. Only thing I'm going to caution people with in that particular instance, much like the James White, James's first shot back from the ankle, modest use, but helpful. Handful plays, help you a few times, but don't presume it to be at the high level that you remember before, right? I think that was the same with Chris Hogan, working way back. That first week back, it's not... 10 targets, right? I think the same thing with Burkhead. If they're able to tape him, brace him, get the knee where he feels okay enough to go on it, you know, he might get a target or two or three. You know, you might get something, but I don't, it's hard to imagine without, you know, having like a, uh, you know, slam dunk view or, or insight on exactly where this guy's health is that he can go from not playing at all, not playing at all, not being healthy enough to play at all to a huge part of the offense. Now, it would be a great add in. I think it's a huge thing if you can get him up and get him a little bit active this week. In the event that you advance and have him there for the for the Super Bowl, if you're if you're if you're able to make it, uh, that would be huge. But I just don't think that even if you see him active, you sh- people should be thinking, oh, good old, the same as we had Rex before. I, I think you assume the step week, the step week like they had with White, the step week like they had with Hogan. Uh, nice to see Burkhead back if he's in. Get him in a mismatch a couple different times. Uh, get him to make a play or two or three. But heavy usage, hard to imagine. But. We, we don't know. We'll see. Uh, Malcolm Mitchell, as we do the show, I have no clue. And they're going to screw me here because uh, he would have to be activated on Wednesday, I believe, is what I had read. And, you know, if, if he's in, that changes. and That's a whole new story. <laughs> uh, but he's not. We'll just roll with the idea that he's not going to be a part of it. Uh, Branch or Harris, Branch, uh, Alan Branch, supposedly back to they're ready to roll last week, but they went the other way. Ricky Jean-Francois, who have been highlighting a lot on Twitter, has been doing a nice job. So maybe he's just the next, the odd man out there in the rotation. But if Branch is brought up, nice little big body addition for a team that loves to run the ball as much as Jacksonville. Um, and uh, Harris, I, I mentioned that name because David Harris is the solid vet uh, that is dependable, doesn't screw up. He's where he's supposed to be. He's a do-your-job guy. I think in a pinch, if if they felt like they needed a guy, he'd be the guy there. seems like right now he's the odd man out, and I don't believe we have a, a, a significant change in health throughout the you know throughout the linebacker crew, so I'm assuming that means David's down again. But I think in part here, the, 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 the run scheme you're about to face against Jacksonville is very similar to what you saw against Tennessee. 
And in light of that, the guys they thought would work against Tennessee, I, I presume, would shouldn't change much against Jacksonville. So I would imagine that stays the same as well. Kenny Britt probably stays inactive. Dorsett, I, I presume, stays up, especially with Hogan's role growing and having to make some of the decisions at other positions like the tackle spot, potentially carrying another guy, potentially carrying an extra corner than they did a week ago. I'm just assuming Kenny Britt's not a part of this, but I think he's an off-season project. He signed a two-year. They'll work with that as it happens. Saxonville, let's get on here and get off this in hyper-focus on these two, this, this team specifically. Okay, so i got to be consistent here with you folks, and, and I have to make sure that this isn't taken as, you know, overlooking Jacksonville or talking them down or not respecting them or anything along those lines. I have respect for Jacksonville, but I, as someone who watches the gambling scene a little bit, I, as someone who've been watching sort of the potential threats to the Patriots throughout the year, have kind of held them in a separate place. Yes, top of league, but in context. Top of league in context. And I think that's very important. They've played a lot of bad offenses. They really have, and I think that has helped flood the stat sheet for them. And they've taken advantage of it, so that's all the credit in the world of them. And they've got air quotes talent. They've got some good players, a lot of good players on the defensive side of the ball. So I think that helps lead the conversation clearly. But I think the thing that you also can't deny is that their last month of work hasn't been great. It really hasn't. You know, a shutout against Buffalo, but a wounded animal in Buffalo on the road with LaShawn McCoy hurt and what's left there. In the absence of LaShawn McCoy, Buffalo is like your 32nd offense in the NFL. Like that's, It's not going to be a very dangerous offense. It just isn't. So they did well against them, but then your other games are uh, down the street. You know, that, that 44 egg against the Niners. Uh uh, spoiled, boiled, uh, spoiled, boiled, whatever we would call it. But not a good game, right, against the Niners. And the Niners, and in fairness, the Niners game, one of those is an interception return. So it's really 37 that the defense is responsible for. But a, a game like that is a head-scratcher uh, against a team that is purportedly one of the better defenses out there. Now, their numbers say they are, but the, month, the last month of work is a mixed bag. Solid game against the Titans to end the season in a game they both needed. So that's, that's impressive. That's good. A, a good one against the Bills. But again, really, what were the Bills at that point? So it's like two good performances against two bad offenses and then two terrible defensive performances against the better offenses. So it just kind of is a real mixed signal. Like, what do we make of this? 42 against the Steelers in an ugly way. A lot of broken plays. A lot of just guys running free uncovered. So the reason I you know, sort of wonder if you get med- misled by stats with these guys is in part based upon the, who they've played. And you can really go back through, we'll just do the last two months because that's kind of, in fairness, that's how we generally stick with these things. But you're, you're facing... A mixed bag, we'll say, of quarterbacks uh, and offenses. It's not just the quarterback, just sort of the overall effectiveness of the entire group. You're facing Tom Savage. You're facing Tyrod Taylor. You're facing Mariota. You're facing Russell Wilson. You're facing Blaine Gabbert. You're facing Brissett twice. You're facing Deshaun Carter or Deshaun Kaiser with the Browns. That's where these numbers came from. And the odd thing to me, uh, and again, it's not you don't discredit them. You don't say they suck. I mean, we've heard that for years with the Patriots. Where, oh, if you if you if you beat up on bad teams, you're not you, you must actually be shitty. No, they're very good, but they're very good against bad teams. At the bet against the best offenses, they haven't been very good. They've they've had a little bit different persona. So I think we have to acknowledge that. We don't have to dismiss them out of hand and say the Patriots will walk. The Patriots will also put forty two on them. The Patriots also put forty four. 
I don't think that's a slam dunk. I don't think that's that's necessarily true. But I also don't think that all those things they did against Deshaun Kaiser and Brissett twice and, and those offenses and, and Gabbert leading Arizona's beat-up offense, I just don't think that translates either. So the, the truth of it all probably sits somewhere in the middle, and it comes down to just how do you execute. You know, it doesn't it doesn't come down to who they got, it comes down to how you play. Um I would say one of the things here to that also it's why it gets through the aggravation with stats. Uh the, the Saxonville stuff uh was duly earned. They had a couple monster ass games. Uh two and this is I believe maybe I, I thought I read this correctly. I hope I'm not screwing this up for any, any listener out there. Don't repeat it unless you've you've uh, you fact checked me on this. But Jags had two in game sacks, uh, two in game ten sack days. So ten sacks in one game twice during the season, which is nuts. Well, they did it against Savage at Houston and Jacoby Brissett and Andy, who was one of the most hit, most sack guys in the league. So that was sacks were a problem those teams were both having anyhow. So what does it mean? I don't know. Uh, the best thing I can go is say, okay, are they going to sack you ten times or is the most relevant piece of data how they did against Ben and that offense and a better offensive line comparable to the Patriots' offensive line and a quarterback that knows how to slide move and get rid of the ball. So I think the truth of it, or what you should expect, is more towards what you saw with Ben and less towards what you saw in those other games. That off. Uh, so, you know, again, each his own and what you want to believe. I'm just trying to sort of prepare you to what might be real and what might not be relevant. So those those huge historical sack numbers that they got, they're true, and they're you cannot take that away from them. But they happened against people different than what you are, if, if we're looking from a Patriots perspective. So where does it translate, or does it translate? All right. Now specifically, let's go right into this Jacksonville Pitt game. I think it's the one we learned the most from because it's the most recent. We'll also do the Niners game. And again, we're not going wire to wire here. We're just going to simply talk both sides of the ball and what they do well, what they don't do well, where the holes are, where I think the Patriots can take advantage, and where the Patriots might struggle and really need to bone up. So we'll go here first to the Jacksonville offense and, and what was really illuminated against Pittsburgh. Now, you know that this has not been a big passing offense, obviously. This has been one of the more struggling passing offenses in football. I mentioned Buffalo in the absence of uh, of, of a healthy LaShawn McCoy. I think they're a lot the same way. Um, you know, Fournette's not going and flowing. This is not a group that's going to put up a big number. You saw that even against Buffalo, which is not nearly the defense as, as some of the other groups that are left here. So how do they generate their yards? How do they get their plays? How do they hurt you if if they don't have a really great, uh, you know, spread it out and throw the ball attack? So a lot of the ways is just manufactured offense. And that's that may sound a little derogatory, but what I mean by that is, is I don't mean it as derogatory. It's just that it's a play design to create a very specific thing, as opposed to, uh, you know, the guy drops, you know, the quarterback drops back and he reads everyone. You know, the manufactured plays means the move the pocket, move the pocket stuff, boots and 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 waggles and all these sort of uh, older school kind of concepts. But they do them pretty well now with Blake Bortles. It's been a few weeks of this now where they seem to have found something that works pretty well with him. Move the move the pocket. Boot, find the fullback in the flat, you know, find sort of these uncovered guys off a hard sell play action, which are easier to find when you run the football really well. Uh, the fullback here is the Bohannon guy, Tommy Bohannon. Uh, he's, he's made a lot of plays for them. You know, get Bortles out moving, 
get his le- get his legs uh, sort of as as the focus, him on the move, and then finding one of these targets on the move. Uh, did that really well in the game. And part of that, if you're looking from a Patriots perspective, is not falling asleep, having good eyes. And what that means is sort of seeing through your, your pass key. In other words, say, hey, I'm, an, I'm responsible for the fullback or I'm responsible for the tight end. You have to be able to rerun pass and not fall asleep and lose your guys. The good eyes element of it is still being able to, you know, aggressively get ready to defend a run, but not just abandon who you would have in pass. So it's a disciplined kind of situation. And I think because you want to be so aggressive about it, you want to dive in there because you know Fournette's a hard-charging dude and the, and the Jags offensive line is a big physical group. It, it, that's where they generally catch guys. Being a little bit over-aggressive, trying to really stop that run and then let the guy slip out. Uncovered. Happens a lot. Bohannon's one example. They had some with the tight ends, Mercedes Lewis being one, and then some of the wide receivers just sitting behind over-aggressive linebacker play or over-aggressive safety play. So I just mentioned that sort of the unguarded tight end on the release after he protects. That comes up a lot from the Jacksonville offense. Protect, 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 and leak. And it's like, who's covering that guy? And you saw a lot from the Pittsburgh defense, just blown stuff. It's like, okay, is this Jacksonville doing it or is it, the defense kind of blowing it. And I, you know, we, we had a lot of talk about that, about the Patriots own offense or excuse me, own defense against Kansas city, just blown coverages, falling asleep on a guy, losing track of someone that leaks out late. So there's a lot of that. As you're watching this as a Patriots fan, you're going to want to say, did they play discipline? Do you see what way, 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 why is that guy running around with no one around him? That's the kind of plays that kill you against the Jags. You just have to play discipline. You have to, air quote, do your job. Now, one of the things that's very different about the Pittsburgh front, and I think why they got gashed in the run so much, is even they, though they play some 3-4 concepts like the Patriots, even though they play some 4-down with you know sub-look fronts behind it uh, tr- to try to defend the run, like a lot of people do, they are much more of a jump-around group. And by that, I mean they don't play technique. Uh, they don't necessarily press the offensive line in front of them and keep their head in the gap that they begun that they began in. And, you know, everyone stays in their whole kind of situation. There's this guy, Javon Hargrave, uh, for number 79 for, for the Steelers, and he's a, he was playing nose. They call it tilt, where instead of like a nose like you see Malcolm Brown, where Malcolm's big, heavy, thick dude, powerful, lining up directly over a guard or shaded into the gap on a guard or directly over the nose. He is a more disciplined press guy. He will push you back if you're over him. He'll hold the gap that he aligns in pre-snap because that's his responsibility. He'll power that area. That's a more disciplined Belichickian kind of way of doing things. Pittsburgh, they do the jump around stuff. Now, I can't tell you that they're not being, you know, coach to do that. They may be, but this Hargrove guy would, would align uh, you know, offset in a tilt situation. In other words, he's not straight ahead. He's maybe his body's tilted a little bit into the gap and jump from one A gap over the other A gap after snap. And again, he's probably being coached to do that. It's not just a guy freelance, and I highly doubt that. But the swimming, jumping defensive lineman thing really, really, really doesn't work. Um, and there's a lot of examples there of Jacksonville taking advantage of that. You jump out of your gap, you try to swim to the other side, and they just go back to the vacancy. Happened over and over and over again uh, against Pittsburgh. They align in a lot of these defense. Pittsburgh has aligned a lot of these defensive fronts where they almost align in a way that allows themselves to get hooked because they're really aligned on fast flow linebackers and safety coming down and making hits. But a lot of the defensive linemen, 
jump out of their gaps or align in ways where, hey, I'm a little bit shaded inside the guard and just let the guard hook me. It's weird. I, I don't get it. There was so many times, and even now after doing the show, I'll try to send some uh, tweets out later that show some of these videos but uh, of specifically what it is I'm talking about here. But it's goofy. I'll just say it that way. It's goofy. It's weird. I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm saying, you know, they're just letting themselves get hooked. They're, they're giving up the edges right away by alignment, or they're jumping out of the gap they're already in. That's just not a real disciplined way to create a run front. I think you could watch end zone copy of Pittsburgh's rundowns throughout that Jacksonville game, and there's just a lot of head scratchers. So I say that in sort of as an upbeat kind of point relative to the Patriots where I'm watching this and going, this isn't relative to what the Pats will do. You can go back and see how their run fronts work against Tennessee's and say, well, that works a lot better. Build it, put them in the gaps, keep the gaps, hold the gaps. They'll run out of the gaps. And, you know, you don't have to make a negative play. You just have to air quote do your job. So the Patriots' approach defensively as far as run stopping is much, much different than Pittsburgh's. Pittsburgh, to me, there was a lot of shocking, head-scratching kind of stuff that I saw on tape. It's just a different way to, to sort of to peel the same orange. But I think the Patriots' way down the stretch works a lot better, at least doesn't expose you to the things that Jacksonville was able to take advantage. So just make that note that what Jacksonville did against Pittsburgh, I don't think they'll be able to do it against the way the Patriots uh, approach that. And, And one last little thought on the Patriots' run approach, look at... They did a goofy little thing, and again, Jemai Webster, my, my partner there in Nesson, was sitting next to me, and we kind of noted this as we were sitting up there with our binoculars looking down over the Patriots stuff. They used what I would call almost goal line, out in the field from regular personnel, regular being your, your base defense, your 4-3s and 3-4s and all that kind of stuff. What goal line is in general NFL parlance is 6-2, six guys, uh, six guys on the line of scrimmage, four of which are defensive linemen with their hands down, and then there's a hangover on each of the ends, so that makes six, and those guys are your outside linebackers standing up doing their thing, and then two inside guys. One's a true inside linebacker, the other's the other safety who's kind of in the box. That makes six and two. Out in the field last week against the, uh, against the Titans, the Patriots are using 6-1, really, because the safety wasn't coming all the way down in the box. But it was that four down guys, and then they'd have two stand-up outside linebackers. Uh, I believe it was James Harrison and uh, Trey Flowers, or either James Harrison and Eric Lee, or you know they'd sort of rotate that whole situation. Uh, but they only had one inside guy, and that would be uh, Landon Roberts. And then the safety would add in at times where it was necessary, but it gave you almost a, a, a goal-line look against just the regular run stuff that, that the Titans are doing. And why do they do that? Basically to signal right off the bat, we don't, we don't respect your passing game. We, we're committing full force here to stopping your run, and we're going to do that and make you go over the top on us. Now, I don't believe that you know, it's not gambling necessarily like adding in extra guys. It's just declaring the front right away as opposed to having off-the-ball guys who are responsible for gaps that they have to run down and get. It's it's like aligning in them, basically. And then just having your middle linebacker be the one guy that flows and then the safety down late as a cutback player. So I thought that was an interesting little wrinkle. And wow, that would work so much better than the garbage I saw Pittsburgh doing. So we'll see if it comes back again. Like I said, you know, it, it, the things that worked against – Tennessee should also work against the Jags run scheme. Um, but obviously now the Jags will have a week to work against it. And maybe they'll come up with a wrinkle themselves. Now, moving forward here, um, I would say 
we, we all understand this, and this isn't really meant to be a, a knock on them. It's just source factual, and it's the Jacksonville Jaguars' third down passing game is, is not good. And, and I, I don't have to try to build them up to try to somehow keep from you know offending someone or something like that that might happen to hear this or whatever. But it's not good. It's just, it just really isn't good. I, I don't want to try to lie to our listener or try to build something up that's not there. If you get Jacksonville into third and eight, third and ten, third and eight plus really is, is the way that the teams, at least the Patriots when I were with them, would, would bundle it. If you're seven or less or five to eight, that, that's sort of this other little world. But eight plus means sort of longer route tree. You know, you got to get the 10-yard routes that get beyond the sticks and back. It just takes more time to do, right? So I would say as as we go forward here, one of the things to think about is, or to watch, as you're sort of watching this game, do the Patriots do the good job, uh, the sellout portion, to really keep these runs to to less than two, you know, less than three, a three, a three, and now you're in third and shorter, and then you know, Bortles can just take off and get four, or you can hit the back and the flat on third down, and it's a conversion, or you can hit the little hook route stuff, and it's a conversion. If you've got them in negative or a zero run early they have a really hard time of getting back on track. And if you look back at that Steelers game, a lot of the third down passing were just breakdowns that the Steelers blew. You know, like I said earlier, the the tight end releasing late and nobody covering him and ending up in a 20-yard kind of play. Or T.J. Yeldon protecting, 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 and then hit with a check down later, and that ends up being their conversion on third and eight or third and ten. Or Bortles just taking off. So, their their incidents of of converting third and longer from a traditional drop back set and just finding one of those wide receivers, it just it's a real low percentage uh, proposition for them. So you highly doubt that's going to happen much, right? So anyhow, that's how I think you need to look at it. I think uh, I think you're going to really want your Patriots, and this isn't unique to this week, but you know, obviously when you win early. You, you give yourself a better chance. You win early against the the the, the Jaguars, and it's 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 closer to virtual certainty that you're going to have a much easier time of of getting off the field. Third and longer, they're just one of the worst teams in the league at that. Now again, this gets back to pocket control and having that Marquise Flowers front and make sure that he's just not scrambling to convert these third and eights or third and tens or third and twelves. But provided you're disciplined in that range, I just. I have to honestly say from from tape review, they ain't good at Blake dropping back and trying to f- complete you know 15-yard passes or even 8-yard passes. That's not their world. They get you more in the passing game off play action or stuff that comes off a run earlier in the sequence, at least with more frequency. So um, one thing here, we're going to flip onto the other side of the ball. To me, that's kind of just the who their offense is. And now again, everything I just said gets blown up if Fournette's getting four and six yard pass or run plays on first down. You have to, or first or second down, you have to do that. If you don't do that, well, now the world is your oyster trip your Jags. They've got a chance. They've got a great chance. But if you control the run game, there's not a lot left there. If you control the run game and don't just let guys run free because you fell asleep on them and you don't let Bortles run around, it's just not an offense that has a real deep well. There's just not a lot of ways that they can beat you. Flipping over here to the defensive side of the ball, and I know it's the area that everyone's so concerned about, and I touched a little bit on the Saxonville stuff before. I think it's important to to, to more to lay it all out there, who they got, who they are, what they run, 
And then you can sort of decide for yourself and, uh, you know, what the threat necessarily is against New England themselves. They played the cover three stuff. I'm sure you heard a lot about that. This goes back to the Seattle lineage, obviously, of the Pete Carroll stuff where, you know, you got the big physical corners, your Richard Sherman types who can, you know, beat them up and carry as the third players, but they're almost like match man third players, if you want to call it that, where they're running with the deep routes. They're not as aggressively playing the underneath stuff, and they're really relying on, the four underneath players to be rangy and long and get out and cover stuff. Uh, the one thing they don't have is obviously a Cam Chancellor and an, and an Earl Thomas, Thomas being one of the better free safeties and rangy guys in the middle of the field. They have Deshaun Gibson, good player, but not quite a Thomas, obviously. And they don't have a Cam Chancellor, a big thumper. Church, number 42, he's a pretty good guy, down-the-box guy, makes some plays. They use him as a down uh, coverage player as well. Pretty solid, but that would be sort of your difference. They don't really have the big Richard Sherman body who does. They don't have quite the safety level of play that Seattle does to run that scheme. Theirs is more incomparable uh, competence and in, in, in sort of skill up front. You know, they've got a really deep group of rushers, really balanced crew, as you probably heard Coach Belichick say. Darius is really the add-in. You've got Campbell, who's, who's just a big power, get through a guy, had double-digit sacks. He's just you know, bat balls down. He'll make plays by pressuring you and, you know, basically pocket collapsing as opposed to winning on edges. Um, we also know that there's the Dante Fowler, who got a little banged up in the Steelers game. We don't know his availability as I'm doing this show. He's another good one on the edge, but he's a really aggressive get-up field past the quarterback. We'll talk about that. how that can hurt them here in a little second. And the other one, Yannick, the guy that, that everyone seems to love, and rightfully so, Yannick Ngakwe, number 91. Obviously, he was a guy that was really active. Talked about him a little bit back in preseason when they were doing the inter-squad practices here. Uh, he's been a guy that's actually cut into some of Fowler's reps. Fowler was the you know the first round pick from Florida a couple years ago. Had the bad accident in minicamp, blew his knee out. Didn't have a first year. Uh, I'm sorry, that was three years ago. Uh, and 15 blew it out. 16 comes back. Now we're into 17, and he's sort of in a rotational role. This Yannick guy has really been one of the better. You know, better surprise rusher guys around the league. You know, to hear um, Villanueva, the tackle for the Steelers, sort of break his game down. Uh, he, I read him saying it, and then I went back and watched films. Oh yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. This chop move. Uh, he sort of will take an angle and chop your hands with his inside arm. It's just a basic rip move off of that. But he's a he's really he's kind of thin and does a good job of clearing his hips with this chop. So. Um, he's good, and he's he's unique and an interesting kind of guy because, like you said from earlier, kind of like Marquise Flowers, he can play from off the ball, run and hit moves on the on the move and make some plays as well. So they've got an interesting mix up front, active guys, guys that can make plays. They rotate them through there. Like I said, Fowler and Darius are both high-level front-line guys, but they actually come in as the second wave. Um, but in saying that, they didn't put a ton of pressure on Big Ben after that first quarter or so, maybe midway through the second. It was clean pockets and, and, and a shredding from that point on. So we've seen them do it against good teams. We've also seen them, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, against some of the lesser teams. We've seen against the couple best offenses they played get torn up quite a bit. Doesn't mean they can't still rush. Doesn't mean those aren't still good players, but it means that there are enough other vulnerabilities in what they do to get after them and, and have the rush portion not be something that kills you. So 
here's what I wanted to sort of explain about how Cover 3 works and where I think the vulnerabilities are from sort of that Seattle system. Atlanta runs it, so you know that when you saw them in the, in the Super Bowl a year ago, that's sort of the same idea, except that I think they reverted to more ones and they would play enough man-to-man stuff where it wasn't as much and as heavy as we saw it from Seattle, even as much as we saw it from Tennessee and now Jacksonville. Um, the issue with Cover 3 is... There's beaters, and there's just like there's cover two beaters where it's like, hey, if that team's going to run cover two, we're going to run middle read. We're going to run our fastest guy right down the middle and make the middle linebacker have to chase him and have to read play action whether or not he can get to that coverage. Um, There's routes that hit on cover two between the deep safety and then that pressed corner sort of fitting routes in there. Those are your beaters for two, just the basic couple, two big first ones. But with three, it's just working the hell out of the seams because obviously if you've got three deep players, one right down the middle, one the outsides, those areas between the coverage players, the seams is where you really go after. So you need good seam players. Do they have them? Yeah, that's Hogan, that's, that's Gronk, and that's these backs that get out and run angle routes and get back into those seams. One of the areas where Big Ben really, really torched these guys was in the area uh, outside the numbers. And what sucks about this, and this is something I know from first-hand experience, we ran a decent amount of cover three ourselves. Certainly didn't, you know, I'm saying back in the Patriots days and even the Mangini days with the Jets, we certainly didn't major in it, but it was in our tree. And it was in, you know, if you'd, you'd have 50 plays for the day of defensive calls, yeah, maybe maybe called some version of three. Uh, ten times or something like that. It was something we ran a lot in camp. It was in our basic package. We'd run it, right? And the thing that's very hard, the guy that really gets picked on in cover three is the curl-to-flat player. That's the underneath four guys. Those are the outside two dudes. So remember, in cover three, there's four underneath guys, three on top. The four underneath, the outside guys of the four, those guys are called curl-to-flat players. The inside two, those are called hook-to-curl players. So what you do with the curl the flat player is you pick on him. You give him a hard play action, and then what he has to do is get out underneath a curl route from the extended wide receiver. Because remember, those, those corners are bailing and getting to sort of deep thirds. So if the outside curl to flat player can't get underneath those curls, it's a nice little easy spot to, sit, to fit it in there. If he bails right on the snap of the ball, yeah, the curl to flat player can get underneath there. But a lot of times you can't because you have to honor the run fake. Uh, the other thing is getting that guy flying out underneath number one and then watching the, the number one wide receiver roll it back inside like a dig, like an in cut of something like that or something to that effect and fitting in it again around that curl flat player. So behind him and then before you get all the way into the hook to curl player. So you, you the, the reason three works against a lot of teams if you've got the good enough personnel to do it is you're smaller, you're athletic with those four underneath defenders, and those guys can read and react and make plays. And it works best if the quarterback isn't good at moving you. If the quarterback is, wait for it, not Tom Brady. If the quarterback drops back and throws to his first read that he's looking at. If the quarterback drops back, looks to one side of the field, and comes back to the other, or stares down one knowing that he's going elsewhere, he'll th- his throw will beat it in nine times out of ten because it's really hard when you're not playing a guy man-to-man, when you're just area matching. Uh, you get moved a little bit by a feint of a shoulder or a little bit of head fake or a little bit of a pump fake or him leaning one way where you think the quarterback's going and he goes back the other and he's got guys who are willing to sit in those holes and know how to find them, guys like Amendola, guys like Gronk, guys like Hogan, and that's tough. You can go after the beaters all day, every day. 
And there's a lot of that. There's a decent amount of that from the Niners. There's a lot of it from Pittsburgh. There's, it's just one of those coverages, if you run the right stuff against it and you hold up the protection long enough for it to get there, there's a lot of holes. And I think that's why you see you know, very nearly you know, 460-plus yards or whatever passing. And people that were going to say, oh, but wait a minute, in the Pittsburgh game, a big chunk of the passing comes from two down-the-field throws. A.J. Boye and great coverage on Antonio Brown. But you know why that happened? Because it was real easily pre-snap declared that it's just the thirds player and the go-route. So, yeah, you're willing to throw that 50-50 ball if you think your guy can win it over the top of him. It's a lot of nice pre-snap information. They stand in cover three. You stand with the middle of the field safety. You stand with the two safeties or the two corners bailing off either the line of scrimmage or already standing off in the coverage. You can see who the two four, the four underneath guys are. Like Brady knows. Roethlisberger knows. They, go, they know right where they're going to go with it. And do you feel good about winning 50-50 balls? With Gronk, you do. With Cooks, you do. With uh, Hogan, maybe a little less so, but a lot more last year. We haven't seen as much of that this season. I just think that this is a team that gives a lot of pre-snap information. If you're Blake Gabbert, if, Blaine Gabbert, if you're uh, you know Kaiser, if you're Jacoby Young in your career, if you're a lot of those guys that this defense is, uh, a lot of those kinds of quarterbacks and offenses that this defense is beat up on, yeah, I don't they don't they don't move you as much. They're not the veteran guys. The veterans, I think, rip through this stuff. Again, we'll see. But I think I saw enough of it on tape with, with the Niners and Pittsburgh game to go, oh, that's exactly how Tom will do it, provided he's protected. And that's obviously the biggest key. So moving here forward, uh, the stuff that I think that, that is, is going to work uh, because I saw it against Pittsburgh and the Niners, uh, man pressures. Now, Excuse me. We should when when for whatever reason I don't know what it was, but there were, Jaguars were willing occasionally to get out of their three stuff, throw a little man, but when they got in man, bring the fifth. And Garoppolo had a couple completions, Marquise Goodwin, where they're coming after him, saying, "Okay, we're going to commit. The other stuff isn't working. You're sitting in the holes. Uh, your guys are sitting in the holes. You're picking us apart. Let's go into a man, and we'll bring our fifth to get the ball out of your hand." He did that, and Jimmy was pretty good at finding his guy. For the Patriots, that's can you find the pressure release? Can Brady get it to his guy quickly if they bring the fifth and they get out for a time or two from the three? And the uh, the Jaguars will run some four concept. I saw a, handful, a couple of what looked like four to me, but then a lot of just the basic man stuff, man free, uh, and you know with the help element doing different things that showed up a little bit more in my view against without doing like a you know like an actual backup napkin count, but more against the Niners and against the Steelers. The Steelers are more just guys running free through the secondary because they were coverage by bus and uh, Ben having pretty clean pockets for for almost a half of football so we'll go back down here through the list of things that I think that that were really illuminated in the way the Niner uh, the Niners and uh, the Steelers got at this defense play action flats wow I, I the more and more I watch this I'm like how does this keep happening uh, the, the those four underneath defenders for the Jags they're snapping the ball, bailing out of there to get to that curl to flat area, and over and over and over again, full back to the flat, tied into the flat, uncovered. You know, just a little easy six or seven yard catch. And then if he makes the first guy miss, these plays become 12s and 15s and 20s, or it ends up being just the seven or eight and it's easy. I think that's going to be there time and time again for the Patriots. Uh, I would presume it would have to be after what you saw in film from. from uh, from both the Niners and Steelers. That's a freebie. That's a will it take it. People call that dink and dunk, but it's sort of a giveaway. And it's, you know, we'll see if Brady 
goes to it heavier if he wants to wait longer for, for a bigger piece of meat down the field. But we'll see. That was definitely there, definitely available, and something that you know both of those two, two offenses got after. Uh, tight end inside holes off play action. What does that mean? Play action fake by the quarterback, Roethlisberger or Garoppolo, and then the tight end, Kittle or McDonald in those examples, or either uh, or, or Jesse James in the examples with with what the with what the Niners and Steelers were doing, and that's Dwayne Allen, that's Gronk, just running off the ball, turning and running a curl, and making sure you're not too close to either of those two inside those uh, those hooked curl players, those those zone defenders, and Brady will move them. Brady will move them with his shoulders, move Telvin Smith, move Jax, even move Puzzleski a little bit, and sit routes. They feasted on those. Those you know, McDonald with an over ten day, Garoppolo hit a ton of those routes on the inside. It's just it's pretty easy if the rush isn't bothering you, and you're just advancing those guys, having them turn and sit down, and you have an accurate throwing quarterback will fit it in there between those holes in the zones. You'll eat all day long. So it was there. It was obvious. It's something I think will be available for Brady. We'll see if they're able to go after it. Um, cutback runs. Now, we've got to talk a little bit about the running game, and that was something that Carlos Hyde hit them on. That's something that Le'Veon Bell hit them on a ton, obviously. Um, his was sort of split run game and, and pass. But uh, the cutback run, what the cutback run means is you start play side and you go backside, right? You start to stretch at play side, you go hit the backside A, which is on the other side of the center, all the way back to the B or C gap on the other side. And the reason those kinds of runs are effective against Jacksonville is because those fast flow players, Telvin Smith, man, he likes to run it. He can. He can run you down from the backside as good as anybody out there uh, because he is fast, and he closes like crazy. Uh, he is very good at that. That's where he's most dangerous, really, in chase. But sometimes that aggressiveness hurts him. You can get him to start to flow quickly, get one of those offensive linemen to just tap him by the player, just you know, sort of influence him by, turn and seal, and the cutback lanes are huge. Jax gets in trouble with that. Some of that, get him flowing, get him flowing, and then seal him. Uh, that's something that really both of the backs, uh, for Steelers had some success with it, and the Niners as well uh, saw. So if you're gonna if you're gonna have success in the running game with Deion Lewis, I think either the direct runs we talked about early in the show, where it's movement on the double and then climbing up to the guys in the second level, or direct intentional cutback runs where you trying to get guys to flow one, flow one way and you do the old Christian 4A higher. <laughs> get them going one way and then seal them so you keep them going that way so they can't cut back while the back is cutting back. All right, moving on here. Other things that are big alerts from this game, things that they can hurt you that showed up both in the Steelers game and the Niners game. Sacks from behind. Saxonville, it's not just winning free. It's the extended pocket retrace down the pocket. What does that mean? It's We talk about this all the time, did throughout the season, however many 16, 17, 18 of these shows that we've done, and the importance of you know blocking up the front for Brady uh, and making sure he can step up. And Brady usually being pretty disinterested on and teams that would rush upfield past the quarterback. He wanted that. Let those ends go past. Tom will step up. He'll make the completion. Go ahead and rush upfield the quarter, past the quarterback. He'll kill that. Doesn't bother him all day long. The concern with the Jacksonville Jaguars is that they gotten a lot of their sacks, strip sacks, actually when they did go upfield past the quarterback. So 
that means that their front guys that aren't getting up the field, you know, the two interior players, they're fronting the pocket enough or they're not getting too far up the field where Brady doesn't feel so comfortable that he can step aggressively, uh, that he high hangs in the pocket a little bit. So those guys that flew up the field past him, in this example would be Yannick, maybe Flowers, maybe one of those guys, where they retrace. And what retrace means is once you did get upfield past the quarterback, as the quarterback steps back up, can you chase him back down the front of the pocket and get there without him knowing he's behind you and stripping the ball off him? They've done that a lot. So what this means for Brady is the brush by when they've gone up the field past you, they're not dead plays with the Jags like they are with a lot of other teams. That's usually like forget about them, they're gone. All My guys will clean them up behind me and I don't need to worry about them you got to have really great ball security once they've gone past you. Or you got to kind of have that interior, you know, that internal clock in your head that once they've gone past me, now's when I need to get it out, or i got to tuck it down and run, get five free if, you, if Tom wants to do that. We know he doesn't do that much. But once they've gone up the field past me, yeah, step up, but dump it quickly. Dump it quickly to the to – the, uh, dump it quickly to the check down. Uh, find the hole in the zone guy that you want to find out there in front of you. Or get rid of it because, you know, the times where you want to linger in the pocket, stay in there, extended five and six second stuff, that's when they haven't got past you. When you can still see them all in your purview. They're all in front of you or at least in your peripheral. Those are when Brady can feel more comfortable hanging, hanging, hanging. If he's stepped up, you don't want to hang. You don't want to step up and hang because they're they're coming back down the pocket, and that's when they get their strip sacks. That's when they had the one in the game here with uh, the fumble to Telvin Smith that ran back. I think that was Yannick coming back down the pocket. Um, it's a subtle little twist. It's different with these guys because their edge guys are so quick and athletic. They get up, they get back down quicker than most. And uh, tackles, quite frankly, struggle to clean them off once they retrace. They're just better athletes. So... Uh, the, the, the coordinator, whoever it is, you know, whatever I I'm saying this, telling myself, cause I don't know it off the top of my head. Who's the, who's the coordinator for Jacksonville's D, but they do allow them to be more aggressive further up the field. That's something you're never allowed to do in new England as an edge rusher. They let them do it and they get away with it because of really good retrace and, you know, not getting burned as much by more athletic quarterbacks that if you're going to do it, they'll just take off on you. So that's something to kind of keep an eye down. Uh, excuse me, keep an eye on that. That once Brady lets him go free, ball needs to get out. If they're not up the hill past you, that's your lingering longer pockets. Um, one final thought, and I think this is I think this is very important. It, it that if you're going to talk about going at this defense and preventing what they're best at, which is is the turnover differential, right? They get out in the plus because they turn the ball over, the Saxonville stuff, getting the ball off you on the sack a couple times a game, once or twice a game, getting the ball on the ground, or forcing sort of a, 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 a panicky throw kind of thing because of pressure or something like that. One of the ways to really relieve that is the direct run stuff. Why? Because it sets down those rushers and prevents them from flying up the field. We talked about the cutbacks. We talked about the direct run stuff earlier. I think it's very, very important when they put themselves in run fronts where the smaller guys are on the line, Telvin Smith, or the smaller guys are right off the ball in front of an uncovered guard, going at them. Just go get them. You know, go big on big and win those. That that test him just just having it's a throwaway play is the wrong word but if, if they're going to be willing to put all these little dudes down here bringing the safety down church and letting him be an edge player allowing telvin smith to be an edge player allowing telvin smith to go against an uncovered guard whether that be shaq mason or you know or 
or either a, a Tooney on the other side. When you have an uncovered guard that can climb directly up to a linebacker, that's supposed to be a swallow situation. The guys that beat those kind of blocks, those are your high towers of the world, right? Those are the guys, the bigger, more physical, can hit, separate, and still make plays. Uh, these are not those guys. And if they're going to line in fronts that allow you to climb to them, you got to feast on those. you got to get after that. Why? Because that slows the rush. That, that really changes the formula for all the other things going on. Um, so I really think that if you could push away from the table, give me a couple pieces of information about how this is going to go, yeah, about your Patriots here into this, this AFC championship game. If you could tell me, Two things, and they're pretty straightforward things. This is, I'm not, this is not earth-shattering analysis here. But if you could tell me that there was no turnover, turnover differential plus for the, for the, for the, for the Jaguars uh, in Foxborough, or even if it was as mild as maybe one. They just got their plus one. They won back one possession somehow, some way. They ended up plus one in the turnover differential. You could tell me they're not two. They're not three. The ways they really feast on people, if you could tell me that one bullet point, and you could tell me that the running game was kept in check, much as the Patriots did against Tennessee, or maybe even not that dramatically, even maybe twice as much running as they had against Tennessee, which I think they only gave up like you know a super mild amount of yards overall. But if if the running game is held in check, you know three yards or less per carry, something you know they got to get thirty plus carries to get to their hundred. You tell me that those two bullet points they don't cause the turnovers that they they need. Uh, to shorten fields, to help their offense out, and they don't have a run game that clock controls, Patriots are going to win this in a walk. Now, if they do either of those things, we got ourselves a ball game, folks, and it's going to be competitive right to the end. But that is so incredibly important for this particular team relative to the others that the Patriots have faced that it's, it's really the kind of information, if you have it, you know it didn't go their way. If the Jaguars weren't able to force turnovers, or if they did force some, but then the Patriots also got three or four picks off Bortles, there's just not enough else there, there, okay? And I, I, that's not meant to be a knock on them. It's not to insult them. I'm not trying to do the hot takey thing. It's just you go back through all their, their, their victories, the way they've been able to pull it off, the way they've fought in battle, the way they've ended up on the plus side. It's really needing both of those things. A zero run game and a put in Blake's hand all day, that's going to stress the ability to stay ahead of the game with whatever turnovers or defense is or isn't going to get. Now, the defense goes out and gets them a couple free possessions, and they clock control. They can beat you. And, and this, again, to me, is, is much like Tennessee a week ago. This is a team that the Patriots played ten times. They beat eight. I'd I, I, I place you know, the kids' college funds on that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that this week can't be one of those two. Uh, but for it to be one of those two out of ten – I think those things have to happen, especially on the road. You come up here, you're a little road weary, you've had to battle, battle, battle to get to this point. You come up here, turn over yourself, or don't force turnovers uh, yourself defensively, going to be tough to win in Foxborough. Going to be tough to run in Foxborough. And if your run game is held down, much like the Patriots did with a very similar scheme against Tennessee, God bless. That's how things sit with me, in my view, after a, uh, a few days of pretty hardcore run review, or excuse me, film review of these guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I know this is really way into the weeds, but I wanted it to be because this is such an important week. Now, if the Patriots are able to get through this thing and go to the Super Bowl, we do a different kind of show because you've got two long weeks to sort of digest and see where it's at. If not, they stumble. They go down this week. We'll review that as well, but I know we'll have a lot of angry Patriots fans that will be wanting to know what the hell happened if that's the case. But if it is, 
I got a sneaky feeling that it's some of the stuff we touched upon. Uh, the idea of the turnover issues and how they get them, not just that they would be there, and that they didn't take advantage of the old kind of holes that actually do exist in that defense. We've seen it against Pittsburgh. We've seen it against the Niners. And uh, it's there if they go and get it. That was your Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chatham. I hope you enjoyed the show. Listen to this thing if you need to listen to it a second time because I know it's dense. I know I'm putting a lot of stuff out there. This is more thinking football material as opposed to just, you know, the the rumor stuff that that, that other people fill up and do a better job than I. Uh, This is a different kind of show. I hope you got something from it. I hope you learned something from it. I hope as you sit down to watch and enjoy this game, you use some of the information from this pod to enjoy it more. Go Pats. Enjoy that football game. We'll talk to you on the other side. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.